1: I'm Steve Kerwood. With a climate protection bill stalled out in the Senate, the action now shifts to the Environmental Protection Agency and a California-led deal to reach across the Canadian border.
2: It means that we're looking at an international North American market for carbon trading. Nothing like that exists today.
1: And we look back on the thousand editions of Living on Earth. Our very first show reported on oil following the Gulf, the Persian Gulf.
3: What I say is it's a very massive spill that, that's coated every beach, every bay, every back bay, every lagoon, every shoreline.
1: And there were some predictions that somehow didn't come true.
4: The Australian group predicts that within a decade, their cells will produce electricity at half the cost of coal.
1: We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Last summer, the House passed a comprehensive climate protection bill. This summer, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid announced his chamber is not going to follow suit.
6: For me, it's terribly disappointing, and it's also very dangerous.
1: But the path to a low-carbon future doesn't run just through Congress. California and New Mexico are joining a cap-and-trade program with three Canadian provinces, and the EPA is working on new rules to cut carbon emissions from polluting industries. Living-on-nurse Mitra Tash has been looking into the alternatives and joins me now from our Capitol Hill Bureau. Hi there, Mitra. Hi, Steve. So the Senate has decided to punt on this one, at least for the near future,
7: huh? Yeah, and that means that the biggest player is going to be the EPA. And you probably remember that in 2007, the Supreme Court opened the door for the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Under the Clean Air Act.
7: Exactly. Uh, Well, until now, that authority was mostly seen as a stick to Congress's carrot, a way to sort of push for comprehensive climate change legislation. But since the Senate is taking a pass on that, the EPA is now trying to figure out how to wield its big stick.
1: So uh, what's the EPA likely to do?
7: Well, in terms of emissions reductions, it's kind of uh, hard to say right now. It's still weighing its options, so it's hard to calculate. But sources familiar with the EPA's thinking told me the agency probably can't cut total U.S. emissions more than 5% below 2005 levels, and that's by 2020. That's a lot less than Obama's promise to make a 17% cut and much less ambitious than what scientists and Europeans want the U.S. to do.
1: Still, it's a reduction. So what's the plan?
7: Well, even before the Senate roadblocks, the EPA had moved to tighten fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks. Now the agency is working on how to deal with big industrial polluters, so power plants, oil refineries, chemical plants. And a new permitting process is starting in January, which will ensure that new facilities are as low carbon as possible. But the step after that is trickier. It has to figure out how to deal with existing emitters. One idea is to cap emissions industry by industry and allow companies within a specific industry to trade pollution permits amongst themselves.
1: So if you run a cement plant, and so do I, but I do a better job at cleaning up more quickly than you, then you, I could sell you my extra allowances. That'd be kind of cap and trade.
7: It is cap-and-trade, just a little bit more limited, I guess. You could sell your allowances or you could hold on to them for later um, when you actually need them as the cap gets lower and lower. The idea is basically to make cutting carbon as cheap and flexible as possible. But if you are a cement plant, then you wouldn't be able to trade allowances with, say, a coal-fired power plant or a car factory. So basically the EPA wouldn't be regulating into existence a huge single carbon market. And that is really controversial.
1: But still, there's likely to be a big legal fight, I imagine.
7: Oh, yeah, a huge fight. I mean, it, it's already become one. Industry is very worried. I talked with Jeff Homestead, a former assistant administrator for President Bush's EPA program.
8: If you're in the iron and steel business or cement, any of those industries that require a lot of energy, they compete in a global marketplace. And so if it becomes much more costly to produce those things in the U.S., then they just get produced somewhere else and we import them. It's a conundrum that EPA faces, that Congress faces. I mean, there is no easy answer to climate change.
7: Now, Homestead works for the Washington, D.C. law firm Bracewell and Giuliani. He's now supporting ongoing Senate legislation to slow down or to stop completely the EPA's greenhouse gas authority.
1: But surely the president wouldn't sign that into law. I mean, he'd be handcuffing his own agency.
7: Right. A White House official told me on background that the president would veto any attempt to curb the EPA's authority. But Obama himself hasn't made any public comments to that effect. And that's something that people like Gene Karpinski really want to hear. He's president of the environmental group League of Conservation Voters.
3: He needs to stand firm, stand tall and make it clear you will not
0: accept any efforts to block or delay EPA doing its job. That's their responsibility. That's what the Supreme Court said they have to do. They've already begun to move forward, and that's a critically important next step forward to begin to cut carbon emissions to protect public health. So, Mitra,
1: what does this mean in terms of the big picture for cap-and-trade?
7: Well, cap-and-trade took quite a beating in Congress, but it's not dead. Uh, Europe uses it just recently. China said it's considering using it. And here at home, California and New Mexico just announced they're going to be doing cap-and-trade with three Canadian provinces starting in 2012.
1: Canada, that's interesting. So it opened a pathway for California and Mexico to sell into international markets.
7: Yeah, and in time it could also fold into the mix similar regional programs that are taking place in the Midwest and the East Coast. Pat Cummings, the program manager for the Western Climate Initiative, said his new cap-and-trade program is designed to grow.
2: The bigger, the better. If you have more participants and the market is bigger and everyone is shooting for an emission reduction goal, the overall reductions will be greater as well. So there are a number of reasons why growing the market is important.
7: But you know, Steve, just as with the EPA, this West Coast plan also has to withstand some tough challenges. In California, that means a proposition on the ballot in November that would nix the state's carbon reduction plans. And without California, the program probably wouldn't make as big of a splash. So Congress might be out of the picture for the moment, but politics definitely are not. I think we'll probably see political opposition trail behind any plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions in the near future.
1: Mitra Taj is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thanks, Mitra.
7: You're welcome, Steve.
1: More than a 100 days into BP's oil disaster, officials are close to injecting mud to kill the runaway well. But those dealing with the blowout and its effects say this is only the end of the beginning. Millions of gallons of oil still pollute the Gulf of Mexico, and the long job of restoration lies ahead. From Louisiana, Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports.
5: We were about 10 miles from the mouth of the Mississippi when Doug Inkley spotted it.
3: Oh, wait, look right here. See the sheen, but also see all the little uh, droplets of oil all over the surface.
5: Inkley's senior scientist with the National Wildlife Federation, which organized this boat trip. Here, where the river's brown water hits the gulf's blue, he finds a line of thick, rusty brown blobs stretching on and on.
3: There's no way you can get through this water without coming into the oil. Not only the oily sheen on top, but there's just little particles just spread everywhere all over the surface, and probably underwater as well. Just oil everywhere.
5: Okay, but as nasty as this is, this has got
3: to be better than it was. Well, certainly the situation I'm looking at on the surface appears to be better than it was from what I saw two months ago. It is more degraded. Uh, I'm not seeing as much of it, but I'm also not looking underwater. I'm very anxious to see the reports and the science that comes back from NOAA and other government agencies that is trying to look at this underwater. I wish you would come back and talk to me in five years, and I could say
5: I was wrong. I hope I'm wrong about the impacts, but I don't think I am. Inkley thinks the impact will be big and broad, and he says it's time to start thinking the same way about recovery, large-scale and long-term.
3: The ultimate solution to this BP oil spill is to do long-term restoration. You really can't clean the oil up, as we've seen, because it's still floating out here in the Gulf. You really can't clean it up once it's spilled. If you go into the wetlands, you do more harm than good by tromping around in there or using other means to try to get it out of there. Recognizing that we can't go in and clean the oil out of the wetlands, let's put into place a large program to begin to restore
5: some of these wetland areas. Inkley says more resilient marshes will have a better chance of bouncing back from the oil. But making them stronger means tackling some tough issues. The Mississippi's long levees keep the river from spilling over to rebuild wetlands with sediment. It's estimated Louisiana loses a football field of land every 40 minutes. In his June speech from the Oval Office, President Obama indicated coastal restoration would be part of his Gulf restoration plan. We
9: need a long-term plan to restore the unique beauty and bounty of this region. The oil spill represents just the latest blow to a place that's already suffered multiple economic disasters and decades of environmental degradation that has led to disappearing wetlands and habitats.
5: The president assigned Navy Secretary Ray Mabus, a former Mississippi governor, to lead Gulf restoration. That was a hopeful sign for King Milling. Milling is a courtly former bank president who chairs Louisiana's Advisory Committee on Coastal Protection and Restoration. In his office in the Whitney National Bank in New Orleans, Milling pulled out a map. The map that we're looking at reflects what happens if we do nothing. The map shows a slender strip of land along the river sticking out into the Gulf, but the rest of southeastern Louisiana's wetlands are gone. It's a radically different coastline that could be reality by the end of the century.
6: Absolutely. The uh, Gulf of Mexico has inundated far beyond New Orleans north on both sides of the river. If this occurs, we've probably had to move some million five to 2,000,000 people What you're looking at in terms of that map could make Katrina look like a blip on the water. So there are choices that have to be made.
5: Louisiana's official plan to fight back calls for large diversions of the Mississippi to carry fresh water and sediment to replenish marshes. Coastal scientists endorse the plan, but the state can't carry it out alone. Milling says it's a massive civil engineering project that could cost from 50 to as much as $100 billion and would require strong federal leadership. Now,
6: is Washington prepared to take this on and understand it? Or are they going to continue as they have in, unfortunately, some points in the past of kind of pushing it aside in the hopes that it'll go away? This is not going away.
5: What's your sense from what you've heard from Secretary Mabus? uh, Are they serious this time around? I think they're serious. I think they're very serious. I think
6: the president obviously uh, and his staff are concerned about this issue. It's the magnitude of it, I think, that sometimes just kind of it's difficult for people to get their minds around it. You know, I don't want to be cynical, but the fact of the matter is, is that if this much land had been lost in New England or in or on the northeast coast, I suspect we'd have figured out a way to address it. And, you know, we deliver the fish and we deliver the oil and gas, and that's our function. If that doesn't happen, we'll to hell with it. And uh, this country's just got to decide what it can or can't do. And
5: if it decides it can't do it, then tell us to get the hell out of here. It's startling to hear these words from this genteel member of the establishment. But people on the Gulf Coast have heard so many promises and seen so much loss, they can't hide the frustration and anger. Secretary Mabus will be back on the Gulf Coast the first week of August for more talks on restoration. He'll likely hear an appeal for less talk and more action. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in New Orleans.
1: Just ahead, keep listening as we celebrate 1,000 broadcasts of Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth, show number 1,000. I'm Steve Kerwood. We've kept master copies of all our shows. They're in boxes, piled floor-to-ceiling in a storage room. In the early days, we recorded onto 10-inch reels of magnetic tape. So when we realized this milestone was getting close, producer Helen Palmer and I set off on a quest to find the very first show.
4: We've got to move all these ones here to get down to, yeah, look here. Yes. So we've got to move all this stuff on top.
1: All right, down it comes.
7: I can't lift this.
1: So let's see. The Politics of Global War. Well, this is a This is one of the pilots actually done <laughs> in 1990.
10: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yes, look at this.
10: Let me have a look at this one.
1: So show 14, show, 15, show 4.
2: 910405, oh, oh, isn't that the one we're looking for? Yes, that's the one. <laughs> it's at the very the bottom. bottom. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> where, where else would it be, huh? All right, you know, I'm just going to move this one at a time. There we okay,
2: 910405, oh, oh, master reels. that should be exactly the thing.
1: Yes, all right, well, let's open it up.
2: Living, Living on, on Earth.
1: Earth. Here it is, 91-0001. Oh, 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 the very first show. Oh. April 5th,
2: 1991. Well, here it is, 7.5 inches per second, reel-to-reel and tape. Nicely... <laughs> when did you
7: last see that? Hang All on, right, let let's, get let's get go in the studio
1: and see if yeah. we can find a machine that'll play this thing.
7: Okay, here's, a, here's the thing. Let me plug it in.
4: Look, it turns on. How absolutely amazing. Okay. Now put it
1: on. Now it seems to be working properly.
4: Good.
1: Okay, good. All right, so let's play it and see if it kicks anything. From National Public Radio, this is Living on Earth.
2: Steve, you don't sound much different. It's amazing.
1: (laughs) I'm Steve Kerwood. Damage to the earth, to the land, the air, and the water... The Environmental Cost of the Persian Gulf War. Yes, our first show focused on the environmental consequences of the Persian Gulf War. And today, 1,000 shows later, it's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. Back then, Susan Murray of the CBC reported on what is still the biggest oil disaster in history in Kuwait and off the Saudi coast.
5: Vacuum pumps work furiously to suck in some of the thick black mass staining the beaches of Saudi Arabia... Jim O'Brien of the Louisiana oil cleanup firm, Oops.
3: What I say is it's a very massive spill that's coated every beach, every bay, every back bay, every lagoon, every shoreline.
1: Many of those first stories were doom and gloom, but we saw a bright green future, too, just over the horizon.
4: The Australian group predicts that within a decade, their cells will produce electricity at half the cost of coal.
1: Well, rather too optimistic, and we've made our share of mistakes since we started living on Earth a thousand shows ago. But creating a radio show wasn't my first idea. I wanted to write a book about global warming. I thought it was the hottest journalistic topic out there. War, peace, the economy, and more are wrapped up in the question of global warming. So for advice, I went to Cape Cod and met with George Woodwell. He's a leading scientist who had counseled President Jimmy Carter and testified before Congress about climate change. Dr. Woodwell wasn't exactly encouraging.
8: Well, I remember that you came with the idea that you would uh, write a book, and I uh, wonder if I should have been as discouraging as I apparently was. The fact is that I had written a lot about the climatic issue, a lot that had been ignored, And others were writing about it, and we seemed to be getting nowhere. And at that time, I thought that another book would probably have the same fate. So I guess I was discouraging in that context. Hearing
1: you say, well, who's going to read another book? Certainly one by Steve Kerwood. I said, well, doggone it, nobody is doing radio on this subject. So I left your place mad and taken action. I was going to do a radio show.
8: Well, you know, I'm not too happy that I made you mad, but it's worked. And that's even more important now than it's ever been previously. In
1: 1991, when our show first began, we were in a very different time in terms of international climate agreements. We were still a few months before the Earth Summit in Rio, and since then we've had the Kyoto Protocol to control greenhouse gas emissions in some countries, and seen the failure of Copenhagen to create a truly global deal. Carl Pope and Fred Krupp have been through it all and are with me to talk about changes in the environmental movement between then and now. Carl Pope is the executive chairman of the Sierra Club and Fred Krupp is the president of the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome, both of you, to Living on Earth.
0: It's wonderful to join you for your 1,000th show, Steve.
1: Great to be here, Steve. Well, thank you both. Carl Pope, what are the major landmarks or or turning points that you see?
0: Beginning in 1994... There was a part of the American political spectrum, the reactionary right, that decided to challenge the whole concept that we ought to have an environmental safety net, that we shared this planet with other species and other generations and other countries, and that we had to take care of it. And there was really a systematic assault from 1993 until Katrina. And I think the biggest success of the Sierra Club and other environmental organizations during the last 20 years, has been that we held on during that assault and I hope we're coming out on the other side of it and I think our biggest accomplishment was getting through it intact.
2: What about you, Fred Krupp? Well, what the economists called the biggest success of the 1990s was the implementation of the Clean Air Act, which was proposed by George H.W. Bush. It cut sulfur emissions in this country by 50% at a fraction of the cost. I'm reminded that in the 1990s, the first President Bush had an environmental council. There was champions in the Senate on the Republican side, like John Chafee, later followed by his son, Lincoln Chafee, like Jack Hines from Pennsylvania. And the administrations, the Republican administrations, there were wonderful environmental champions like Rush Train, Bill Riley, and Bill Ruckelshaus, Mike DeLand. And unfortunately, since that time... The issue has become so much more polarized. It used to be that the Republicans and Democrats were competing to see who could be best on environmental issues. Now the Democrats tend to take us for granted, and the Republicans often tell me that they can't get any credit for the good things they do, so they sometimes say that, why bother? And this is a bad dynamic, and this is something we really need to uh, get back to the old days on. Carl Pope How healthy
1: is this, and what kind of hope do you see, if any, for a more bipartisan approach?
0: Well, it's the assault from those voices that said that we really shouldn't be trying to protect the environment for future generations uh, has been extremely unhealthy. And one of the consequences was it drove the voices of environmental responsibility in the Republican Party, either underground or out of the Republican Party, We have an enormous number of Sierra Club members who used to be Republicans. They're now mostly independents or Democrats. We have to actually take the Republican Party back from the voices on environmental issues who currently control it and say that the United States, for example, should not do anything to reduce its dependence on fossil fuels. Voices who really don't believe in environmental stewardship, most grassroots Republicans do. They just don't have leaders in their party who are listening to them, and we have to fix that somehow.
1: And now what about the business sector? Uh, Fred Krupp uh, has become now quite involved with the environmental movement. How well is that working?
2: Well, I think it's working reasonably well. We've had some real success with companies like Walmart who are greening up their supply chain and squeezing carbon emissions out of their manufacturers in China. We've had great work with McDonald's on getting uh, folks that raise chickens to use less antibiotics. We've worked with FedEx and pioneered a whole new generation of hybrid trucks that are now used by more than 200 companies. So there's been real successes, and uh, I think the United States Climate Action Partnership was a great example of companies and environmental groups coming together to jointly recommend to Congress a path forward on climate change. Unfortunately, the utilities... That were part of it ended up deciding that they were better off without a bill. I'm sure in the future, while we'll continue to partner w- with companies, uh, you'll probably see a little more litigation from the Environmental Defense Fund to keep some of them honest. Carl Pope, how well do
1: you think this business oriented approach on environmental protection is working?
0: Well, they're innovative companies and they're stand pat companies. And the challenge always is that the stand pat companies resist change. So the real challenge we face is how do we build access to finance, market share, and regulatory predictability for innovative companies, companies that are making wind turbines or solar cells or that are increasing the efficiency of the grid. How do we give those companies a fair shake and get out of the way the roadblocks to progress – that are being erected by companies that want to hold on to the technologies of the 20th, and in some cases, even the 19th century. Let
1: me ask you both, how well do you think the Obama administration is doing in terms of the environment, particularly I'm thinking of climate?
2: You know, Steve, President Obama has done more than any other president in history on the climate issue. He's made it a priority in his campaign. His first speech from his Oval Office was not only about the disaster in the Gulf, but to need to act on energy and climate issues. Unfortunately, he never came out with a specific proposal for where he wanted the Senate to gel. Unlike President H.W. Bush, who came out with a proposal on the Clean Air Act, President Obama did not do that. And it was just unrealistic to expect that the senators would gel around a particular proposal without that one additional thing. Karl Pope?
0: Well, I think the executive decisions of the Obama administration have been remarkably strong, remarkably progressive. Where I think I would give the president less good marks is in figuring out the formula for leading the United States Congress and developing consensus on an approach to climate. To be fair to him, he's dealing with a very difficult landscape in which the leadership of the Republican Party in both the House and the Senate was determined from the very beginning to deny his administration by abusing the Senate's tradition of extended debate, the filibuster. And it is the president's job to solve political problems as well as to run the government, and I think the president failed to solve this problem. I think the next Senate absolutely must change the rules of the game which allow a tiny minority of senators to completely obstruct the public business.
1: Carl Pope is the executive chairman now of the Sierra Club, and Fred Krupp is the president of the Environmental Defense Fund. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Steve. It's wonderful to be with you, and I probably won't be on your 2,000th show, but I hope you're still around and doing it.
2: (laughs) Steve, a 1,000 shows, quite an achievement. You've enlightened a lot of people on these important issues, and we're all the better for it. The Sierra Club has been around
1: since 1892. But George Woodwell, whose advice helped inspire the launch of Living on Earth, worked with Fred Krupp in creating the Environmental Defense Fund and had a part in starting the World Resources Institute and the Natural Resources Defense Council as well. He founded and directed the Woods Hole Research Center and has also been a science advisor and board member of the World Media Foundation, which produces Living on Earth. George Woodwell says scientists have a duty to alert the public to the dangers they see.
8: I think the public understands the climatic disruption issue far better than our governmental leaders at the moment are willing to acknowledge. And unfortunately, we have a very heavy corporate influence over government at the moment in the United States. I think that's a malevolent influence. Certainly as far as the climatic disruption is concerned, it it is a malevolent influence. Bad for the public, bad for the country, and bad for the world. They have been deliberate. These corporations have been deliberate in undermining the seriousness of the climatic disruption in the public eye, and certainly in the political eye. And the money that they control influences the political eye of the world heavily. I think that is corrupt, simply corrupt and that uh, something has to be done about it very soon. We have hoped that Mr. Obama would take leadership and clean up the mess, and we really need someone like him who can do it. So how do we get there? How does society get to this place where you say we
1: need to be for our survival?
8: Well, if I knew how to get there, I would be pushing to get there. My perspective at the moment is that we have to have presidential leadership in the nation right at the moment, real presidential leadership. He and the White House and his staff, science advisor and the entire administration have to step forward and say to the nation, we have a problem. Here is the scale of the problem, and here are the details of the solution. The solution involves shifting away from fossil fuels immediately, as rapidly as we can. A 20% reduction in the use of fossil fuels overnight is possible. We have, in fact, in the last year, used less fossil fuels than ever previously, that is, in previous years. And there's no reason that we can't use much less over the course of the next few years. The objective has to be to not just stop the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but to reduce the present burden And that can be done, but it can be done only with U.S. leadership and White House leadership within the U.S. Now, George,
1: you're an ecologist by profession. You're a conservationist by conviction. You've devoted your career to the understanding, the interactions of different ecosystems, but you've also taken it a step further to get involved with the policy and politics of things.
8: Why? Well, if one is going to pursue a life dealing with significant issues... We have to show how they're significant and uh, be effective. And my view has been that the environmental issues are indeed significant issues these days and that they are at the core of governmental responsibility. If we step back and ask why it is, at least in democracies, that we entrust to some of our fellow citizens the business of running human affairs then we come out with a view that those human affairs are very heavily linked to environmental issues, that the core purpose of government has to be to protect human interests in life on Earth, in living on Earth, in fact, (laughs) in breathing clean air and using clean water, and in having rules and regulations that make it fair to everyone in their access to opportunities for life. So a scientist looks at all of this and says, well, we have to connect our basic biophysics and biophysical requirements to governments. So there's every reason to look at government and ask whether it's doing its job. And in many ways, our government is doing its job. In many other ways at the moment on environmental issues, it is not.
1: How important is it for scientists to be revolutionaries?
8: Well, scientists don't want to be revolutionary, of course. They'd like to be simply laying out the facts of the world. But when the facts of the world are not taken, not heard, and ignored in a systematic way by commerce and government, scientists have to be outspoken. And now I think that it's time to be really shrill and unfortunately obnoxious because the cost of failures, failures to protect the basic biophysics of the Earth, are going to be, if we don't recognize them, civilization itself. It will lead to chaos. How obnoxious are you going to be, George Woodwell? Well, (laughs) It's hard to say. You have to figure out where to be obnoxious. I must say that I think our, our scientific community has to uh, make a lot more noise. We should have been and must be now in the very center of the political arguments and the economic arguments, protecting the basic environment of the earth to protect all life and to protect people. But protecting people isn't enough. Protecting all life will protect people.
1: George Woodwell is founder, director emeritus, and senior scientist at the Woods Hole Research Center. Thank you so much.
8: Well, it's my pleasure, Steve.
1: Coming up, we turn our attention to O3, or ozone, an environmental challenge met with timely and effective action. That's just ahead right here on Living on Earth.
5: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The very first story we did back in 1991 was a brief item about the hole in the ozone layer. Back then, we had an environmental newscast at the top of the show. Jan Nunley was our newscaster.
4: The Bush administration is reviewing new research data showing that the ozone layer over the United States is disappearing at twice the rate previously estimated. The Environmental Protection Agency is now predicting that 12 million Americans will develop skin cancer in the next 50 years as a result of increased exposure to ultraviolet light. Agency Administrator William Riley says the U.S. should reappraise its policies on control of ozone-destroying chemicals.
1: At ground level, ozone, a hyperactive form of oxygen, is a pollutant. But high in the stratosphere, a thin layer of ozone screens out a lot of ultraviolet radiation from the sun, making life possible on land. Back in the 1980s, a large hole in the ozone layer suddenly appeared over Antarctica and surprised scientists. The hole in the sky spawned the 1987 Montreal Protocol, an international treaty to phase out Freon and other chemicals that destroy the ozone layer. Still, the damage was done, and skin cancer rates in the U.S. have turned out to be much higher than earlier predicted. Ozone loss appears to have peaked in 2006, But it will be another 60 or so years before the protective layer is forecast to get back to normal. Author and journalist Diane Dumanoski covered the Montreal Protocol for the Boston Globe in 1987 and says the ozone story has much to teach us today.
4: One of the things that was really ironic about this was that shortly before the hole in the ozone layer appeared, the National Academy of Sciences, its National Research Council, had done the final of its four assessments on ozone depletion and had concluded that the problem was not as severe as we'd thought. And then, bam, we have this report out of left field of this dramatic loss of ozone. And you had the scientific community debating about whether this was man-made or a natural event. And a whole lot of people found... The idea that man-made chemicals could cause this bizarre disappearance of ozone to be inconceivable. Basically, they thought the planet was robust, and how could humans do enough, even with you know the modern scale of the modern industrial enterprise, to perturb it?
1: The ozone problem you write in your book actually could have been much worse. If the engineers involved, the chemical engineers, had used a slightly different refrigerant, because this was first; these chemicals were first widely used in refrigerators, can you tell me that story?
4: Yes. Had Thomas Midgley, the inventor of CFCs, made his refrigerants with bromine rather than chlorine, we could have had catastrophic ozone loss by the early 1970s in all seasons in all parts of the Earth. How? Um, because atom for atom... Bromine is 100 times more destructive, and it doesn't require special conditions. In Antarctica, you only have ozone depletion in the springtime when the sun is rising, and you need these special super cold clouds, polar stratospheric clouds that only occur over Antarctica. Had we had bromine in those refrigerants, these refrigerants could have destroyed the ozone layer anywhere and at all times.
1: So what did the world do at the time to avoid truly catastrophic ozone depletion. We've got plenty of problems from it, but it didn't push us over the edge, really.
4: Basically, when ozone depletion showed up, it showed up in a place never forecast, in a much more dramatic way, and via a chemistry that hadn't even been thought of. So it was a complete surprise that blindsided scientists, where you had basically 50% of the ozone layer over the South Pole disappearing in a matter of weeks. I mean, it was just this science fiction sort of event that was so bizarre and so beyond what was thought possible that the NASA computer kept consigning the data that the satellite was seeing to the junk file for further analysis later. If you had suggested before this was actually documented that this was possible, one one leading scientist, Susan Solomon, said it would have been considered preposterous and alarmist. The fact that it didn't turn into worldwide catastrophe was perhaps in part because we got together and did a treaty called the Montreal Protocol to start eliminating these chemicals.
1: So the ozone story can be seen actually as a fairly good story. It's still a problem, but it's not catastrophe. A treaty was put together, caps were put on this. We took these chemicals as much as possible out of industrial circulation.
4: That was a positive development for sure. And at the time, there was huge optimism that this would be a model that we could follow and move on quite swiftly to climate change. I I can, in fact, remember the day I was in the room in Montreal when the treaty events were concluding. And I I remember speaking with a Norwegian diplomat who was saying to me, well, on to climate change. And there was a feeling that we were going to roll forward to the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992 and really get moving and deal with these problems of global change. We went to Rio, but we seemed to go home and take off on another track.
1: Around climate, there's much controversy in the political realm about the science. How does that compare to what happened over the ozone layer, and what lessons could we take from our experience with ozone and the scientific debate there and bring into the present?
4: Well, I think one of the important lessons is that uncertainty cuts both ways, that our ignorance is often far greater than our knowledge, and that we're playing a game where nature holds a lot of wild cards, and that we're likely to go through the century knocked off our feet by surprises. So I think uncertainty is no reason to continue playing this Russian roulette with the planetary system. Uncertainty could mean that we do not emerge at the end of the century with organized human life.
1: Diane Dumanovsky's latest book is The End of the Long Summer. Thank you so much, Diane. Thanks, Steve. Just ahead, how to spot the birds when you can't see them. But first, this note on emerging science from Bridget McDonald.
11: Stethoscopes let doctors hear inside the human body. Now researchers have found a way to tune into individual cells. Researchers in the United Kingdom are developing a micro-ear device that will let them listen to cells by using laser technology. Scientists surround a cell with a ring of laser beams, each with tiny glass or plastic beads suspended inside. When the cell makes a noise, beads wobble, causing vibrations that are converted into sound waves. It's the same way that acoustic energy becomes an audio signal inside a microphone. When the beads vibrate, a high-speed camera records their movement, so scientists can figure out exactly where the sound is coming from. Researchers think the micro-ear could be used to eavesdrop on parasites and bacteria, like E. coli. By understanding noises that come from an organism's smallest moving parts, scientists hope to develop medicine that can stop them in their tracks. Even for microbiologists, it pays to be a good listener. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Bridget MacDonald.
1: America is going for the birds, literally. According to a survey by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, bird watching is the fastest-growing outdoor activity in the nation. More than 50 million Americans report that they watch birds. But as Living on Earth's senior correspondent Bruce Gellerman learned, there could be a lot more to birding than meets the eye.
9: An hour north of Boston on Plum Island is the Parker River National Wildlife Refuge, a 4,600-acre birder paradise. It's one of the most spectacular uh, birding areas on the East Coast. And Bill Getty should know. He's sanctuary director of Massachusetts Audubon's Joppa Flats Education Center, just up the coast from the National Refuge.
10: It includes uh, marshland, saltwater marshes, uh, ocean, uh, beaches, uh, some upland forest on the mainland side. We have a lot of nesting birds here, including the endangered piping plover and least tern. So uh, people come into this area to view birds throughout the year.
9: And then there are people who come here once a year who don't view birds.
4: So I used to think birding was all watching
9: with binoculars and everything.
4: That's what I used to think.
9: Dorothy Donovan is a lifelong bird lover. She's been coming to the National Refuge every year for more than a decade, but she's never seen a bird.
4: I've always liked birds. My mother used to have us watch the birds in the yard, and we'd all go out, and she'd tell me what was going on with them, and I'd listen to them sing, and that's always been a part of my natural world. When did you lose your sight? I was one of those premature babies that got too much oxygen.
9: So you were born without sight? Basically, yes. Dorothy Donovan is with the Lowell Association for the Blind. The group has been part of Mass Audubon's Birding by Ear program since it started 11 years ago. Okay.
10: So we're going to we're gonna meet over here.
9: The blind birders gather in a parking lot at the National Refuge. Bill Getty leads the group slowly down a dirt path into a maritime forest filled with 30-foot pin cherry and birch.
10: Okay. Why don't we do this, uh, folks? We're going to just move up just a little bit. There's a little bit of a hill. But if you listen to your left-hand side, there's yellow warbler. And it's singing, sweet, 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 I'm so sweet, or sweet, sweet, sweeter than sweet. Oh, do you hear the toey?
9: The path pitches down. It's slippery. Some of the blind birders use canes, but not all.
6: Just go slow. (laughs)
9: Don't make any rash moves. Bill Getty discovers something at every step. He stops and waits for the group to collect.
10: When we go on these field trips, we're, we're birding by year, but we also make an attempt to show and have them smell as many different things, so use as many senses as possible.
9: There's moss, honeysuckle, and bayberry. Getty snaps off a twig from a low bush.
10: This is certainly a nice one. Smell that.
9: Ooh, it smells yeah. like a rose.
10: Oh, it is a rose. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, That's it's a rose? Beautiful pink color. Yeah, it's a rose and the thorns. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, folks, I'm going to pass back a rose. They have little thorns on it, so you want to be careful of that. But smell the flower. It's a beautiful Rosa rugosa.
4: You find a lot of this on Cape Cod near the beach.
9: Sharon Sin Savage has macular degeneration and just had cataract surgery in both eyes, but she wouldn't miss the birding-by-ear field trip for the world.
4: It's very important because I have a lot of faith and it makes me feel I'm closer to God's nature. And that's good.
10: Oh, there's a red start, that real squeaky song, What a catbird. Oh, the red start oh, is red really star. quite close that now. Let I'm going to just try to... Sometimes by making that noise, you'll actually attract the birds to come closer.
9: Bill Getty can hardly finish a sentence without identifying a bird. He's a world-class birder and naturalist. The birding-by-ear program for the blind was his idea. Can you imagine being blind? okay i mean i I can't imagine
10: and and i can't imagine not being interested in natural history either that's part of my soul or whatever you want to say so we so enjoy it but we also think it's a really important part of the uh of massachusetts Audubon mission to get out and try to get as many people excited about the natural world and conserving it as we possibly can that's what we're in the business to do 2nd Third one
3: third one
9: Mass Audubon volunteers lead the birders the out of the forest down some steps onto a narrow boardwalk stretching out over the Merrimack salt marsh. Yeah.
4: Good, excellent. Now we're going left again. And there's going to be a little lip, not just a step, but just a little round, A little lip, about an inch down. Yep.
9: Violet Santa Maria tap, tap, taps her cane to make sure she doesn't fall into the salty muck. She has little vision in one eye, but her hearing is sharp, and she quickly identifies the song of the marsh wren that Bill Getty describes as a burst of bubbles.
10: It's a small bird, only about the size of a chickadee.
8: Oh, 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 hear that bird. I've never seen a marsh wren, but I can hear it. <laughs> chip, 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 chip. <laughs> chip, chip, chip,
2: chip, chip.
6: So peaceful,
9: yeah. You don't even hear traffic around just nature. <laughs> 84-year-old George Damaris wears thick, thick glasses, but navigates without a cane. Well between cataracts and macular degeneration. Uh, I'm almost uh, illegally blind. Do you feel like you're missing anything? Not being able to see the birds. I can hear them. <laughs> it doesn't feel any different. I just can't see it as well, but I still enjoy it just as much as I did before. Just a step. Yep. It is a little frustrating not be able to see all the finer points of it as I once could, but it's beautiful. The day is crystal clear and warm. Tall green grasses and cattails line the boardwalk as it cuts a path through the salt marsh. It's a wonderful sight, even for those with just peripheral vision.
3: See, I have an advantage. See the dark green? you got a white boardwalk down through the center, more or less. It's bleached, and I can uh, see it.
9: Ed Hess lost most of his sight to macular degeneration six years ago, but he's a birding-by-ear veteran.
3: I enjoy it. This is about my fifth trip here with the blind. Thoroughly enjoy it.
9: see so you got a camera. Yeah. You
3: see, take pictures. Yeah, I always, I always took pictures. Uh, I enjoy photographs. <laughs> so even though you can't see so well, you still take pictures? Yeah, I aim in the general direction, and then I go to one of these uh, stores where you can adjust the size and what scope you have on it and all like that. I still have a very expensive camera that I can't use because of the telephoto lens. I can't see what I'm honing in on.
9: Photographer Al Trudeau has his sight. He's come to the refuge to take photos. His expensive camera is perched on a tripod. A humongous lens points to a distant tree. But Trudeau isn't having much luck spotting birds.
2: You hear it, you locate it, and then you try and get the visual. So my end result is visual.
9: Can you identify the sounds of the birds?
2: I'm not good at it. <laughs> but Bill Getty
10: sure is. We had the catbird, the yellow warbler.
9: He ticks off rose. the birds we've Red heard this start,
10: Morning dove. Tohi, marsh wren, red-winged Blackbird.
9: He says not being able to see the birds isn't necessarily a handicap.
10: In some cases, actually, to survey birds, it's better to listen for them. Because you've seen two birds, but I'm sure there are at least 20 that we've already experienced, but we've only seen two. And right behind you is the red star. There's a Tohi again singing over here, drink your tea. Drink your tea, you hear the song?
9: The birds will be in full voice throughout the summer, but Bill Getty warns, stay away until mid-August, or the greenhead flies will eat you alive.
10: But in the fall, you should come back sometime in the evening when we have thirty or 40,000 tree swallows here. I mean, it's really a natural history wonder. It's, uh, it's just fantastic.
9: A gift for the ear, the eye, and all the senses. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman.
1: We leave you this week in some hot water, but don't worry, you're not in trouble. Yellowstone National Park is known for its geothermal features, and hot springs are the most common. This small hot spring percolates right into the Yellowstone River. Jeff Rice enjoyed the bubbling and recorded it for the University of Utah Marriott Library, westernsoundscape.org. Today, Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. The crew of our very first program back in 1991 included Gary Covino, Peter Thompson, Lisa Weiner, Jim St. Louis, Deborah Stavro, and George Homsey. Our original theme music was by Michael Aaron, and Bruce Gellerman helped design the billboard. You can hear all of the first broadcast of Living on Earth, that's 1,000 episodes ago, by going to LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood, and... A word of thanks to all of you who over the years have made Living on Earth, and now its younger sibling, MyPlanetHarmony.com, possible. It's been a wonderful journey so
2: far. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PAX World, for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.